Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of the God and My Girlfriends podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Ramirez, and I have some amazing special guests this season, and we're going to dive into some topics that will help us all learn how to nurture our spiritual lives, nurture our friendships, and nurture ourselves. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, friends. I hope everyone is doing well and that you're enjoying this beautiful fall weather, or at least it's been beautiful here in Tennessee. I mean, it's been stunning. Uh, The mornings, I'm out in my little sunroom having my morning devotional time, and the sun starts coming up, and it's so clear, and the sky is so blue, and the colors in the trees are just, uh, it's it's. First part of November is absolutely my favorite time of the year, hands down. Hands down. And if you don't agree with me, well, then you're wrong. <laughs> okay, sorry. Feeling sassy today. Um, enough about the weather. Okay, so you guys, you know when I started this podcast, one of the things I wanted to do here with this space is point the spotlight towards women that I believe are doing really great things in the world just out there doing the work that they feel God led them towards and helping others in the process. Our guest today is definitely one of those women. Our guest is Dr. Camden Morganti. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and an adjunct college professor. She's really smart, in other words. (laughs) She writes and speaks about Christianity, psychology, and gender equality, and she's a regular contributor to Christians for Biblical Equality's blog, Mutuality. She's currently writing a book on the myths of purity culture, and she provides coaching services for purity culture recovery, egalitarianism, and faith reconstruction. Dr. Camden and I, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but we're going to start talking a little bit about what coaching is versus therapy and why, as a therapist, she started her new coaching practice. Now, she has her explanation about it, but I'll just cut to the chase and tell you that she started this practice because she is passionate about helping people work through those three toxic Christian cultures I just mentioned. Now, don't get me wrong. There are more than three toxic Christian cultures. But her heart and expertise is in those areas. And let me tell you, she's going to be a lifeline for those that are desperately trying to navigate their way through those waters. I mean, she, she's just awesome. She's brave and she's beautiful and she's smart and she's compassionate. And I know you're going to love what she has to say. We really only had time to kind of slightly touch on each subject, I mean, we could do an entire episode on each one of the toxic Christian cultures, and maybe we will next season. Um, But today, we just tried to give you an overview of these three. Now, speaking of next season, we are winding down here with um, only one more episode after this week, and then I'm going to take a little holiday break, but we will be starting season three in January. So please, 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 if you listen to us and you're finding this podcast valuable, number one, don't hesitate to contact us and let us know what you want to hear us talk about for next season. Like, what are the topics that are serving you guys? We really want to know. 
And if you haven't already, please go rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on. It, I can't tell you how much that will help us get the word out. Okay, so that's it. I've talked enough. Let's get right into my interview with the wonderful Dr. Camden Morganti. Hi, Dr. Camden. Welcome. Hi, Marsha. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I appreciate it. You know, I found you on Instagram, the magic of social media. And um, as someone who has personally been working through deconstruction and reconstruction um, and all that comes with that over the last few years, I'm always drawn to content that... um, that helps give perspective and language and support in those areas. And so thank you for all you're doing on your socials with that. I know that that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy Mm -hmm. to put all of that content out. So thank you. People are noticing and it's so, so very helpful. Thank you. I already told everyone in the intro before I brought you on, um, a little bit about you and that you're a licensed psychologist here in Tennessee. We were just talking, we're both Tennesseans and I'm mm-hmm. heading up, heading up through your beautiful town, uh, in a couple of days and, uh, hope to see the colors. And, uh, have you lived in Knoxville for a while? I've been here for eight years now. Eight um, years. I, yeah, I moved here when I finished my doctorate, um, and got my, you know, my first, um, psychologist job here and then met my husband and, um, we've been married for a little over five years now. So oh, yeah. congratulations. Where did you grow up? I grew up moving a lot. So um, mostly the Southeast, but okay. no particular place. Gotcha. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. And just one other quick question about your background. What is, what is your faith background? Did you grow up in church? Yeah, I grew up in evangelical non-denominational churches, pretty conservative, um, kind of upbringing, um, was homeschooled for, for part of it and Christian school for, you know, part of it. And, um, yeah, always it really involved in church and, um, just evangelical culture through books and teachings and focus on the family and just all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so that had a, a big emphasis, um, and influence on my upbringing. And then I went to Christian college and in the South. Um, and so that has its own culture as well. Uh, those Same. who've gone to Christian colleges. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I went to a Southern Baptist college, mm. um, in Arkansas. So I, I get it. Um, so I'm guessing, uh, so your background was strong in, into evangelical churches. And then at some point it started sort of shifting and you started doing, going through your own, deconstruction, which eventually led to you wanting to help others in these areas. And you Mm -hmm. started a coaching business, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me ask you just quick. So you're a therapist and I know Mm -hmm. that you have, have been very vocal about the fact that as a therapist, you can only practice in the state of Tennessee where you're licensed, but now Mm -hmm. because you're a coach, you Mm -hmm. can actually help anyone. You can serve and help Mm -hmm. people outside of the state. Let me just start out by asking you, what is the difference between therapy and coaching 
Mm-hmm. And like, how would someone know, do I need a therapist or do I need a coach? Can you mm-hmm. kind of dive into that for just a second? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm absolutely a big proponent of therapy and, you know, that, and being a therapist in private practice is my main job, uh, mm-hmm. my main source of income. And um, so there's, there's pros and cons to each of those services, but, um, but yeah, as you said, when you're um, a licensed therapist, you're licensed state by state and we don't have reciprocity in the other states, meaning like, I'm licensed in Tennessee only, but I can't go to another state and practice. Mm-hmm. And that became really problematic during the pandemic when I was seeing clients and then some of them were college students who went home to another state during the quarantine, you know, or mm-hmm. um, or just travel or, or work out of state. And, um, and so I would have to get special permission from that state. And during the pandemic, they would grant some, you know, temporary permission for that. But then as I've, um, I've been writing and speaking about um, purity culture and faith issues for over a year now for about a year and a half. And as I've been doing podcasts like this and speaking on social media, people would reach out to me and say, can I see you for therapy? And they were in other States and I wouldn't know anyone in that state to refer them to. And it just felt awful to have this, this passion for these issues and some skills and and knowledge as a, as a psychologist that I felt like I could offer others, but to not be able to do that because of the restrictions of, of my profession. So um, so I explored more about coaching and how to do that ethically and how to separate it from my license. So anyone can call themselves a coach. It's an unregulated profession. Mm. Um, so anyone with any level of education or experience. Um, so with that, you do have to be careful to select a coach who has some competency and has a proven record of speaking to the issues that you're looking for help with. Um, but I do enjoy it so far. I just launched my coaching um, practice last month. So, but I am enjoying the freedom it gives me because I've seen clients, um, coaching clients like in, who live in a different country. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So I, I enjoy that freedom to see people um, all over the country or in, even in other countries. And I enjoy um, just the very like it's more brief than therapy. Like in therapy, I might see somebody for you know months or years. Um, coaching is really meant to be more short term and it's meant to be very targeted to specific issues. So the coaching I offer is for purity culture, egalitarianism and faith reconstruction. And so we're only focusing on this shoot, those issues, um, which is why it is so goal-directed and so brief versus therapy is more holistic. And I'm going to look at more of the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health more holistically. Um, and so that obviously just takes longer and it's more in depth and you get more into the past, your past with um, therapy than with coaching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that's how my practice is different. I know every coach is a little bit different and some um, do get more into the past or do see people more long-term, but, um, but that's what my practice is looking like so far. And, and yeah, I'm enjoying the differences and enjoying um, just like speaking to people one-on-one about how purity culture has affected them. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that you, that you talk about usually when you talk about faith, you talk about reconstruction versus deconstruction. Um, but doesn't someone have to deconstruct first or, or not? What, what, what do you say to that? Yeah. I mean, different people have different definitions of those terms. And so, um, we might mean the same thing and just use different terms, but yeah, Mm -hmm. deconstruction, I think of it as like, you've got this house or this building structure and deconstruction means you're taking it apart piece by piece and you're examining and looking at each piece to see like 
what is still has its integrity, like what still, um, you know, is in good condition, what's still safe for my house, or what is rotting, what um, was should never have been there in the first place, what's not a good building material, or what's just no longer serving me well. So that's kind of the deconstruction is the picking apart and analyzing. The reconstruction is now let me put it back together, build this house back together with maybe some of the previous materials that are still good, as well as some new materials um, that I'm incorporating in to make this structure have more integrity, to make it stronger. Um, and so I call it faith reconstruction because my goal is for people to be able to maintain their faith um, and to mm. be able to continue some sort of relationship with, with the church, if that's what they want, um, to have a relationship with God and maintain some faith practices. A lot of times people think that deconstruction means you're deconverting, that you're walking away from Christianity or the church, or that you're no longer going to be a believer. And, and that's certainly the outcome for some people, but I don't think it is for everyone and it doesn't have to be, um, you know, the outcome for everyone. So I want to come alongside people and help with the rebuilding process. But along with that is the deconstruction too. So I'm seeing that in my coaching practice of we're looking at like their purity culture teachings and we're deconstructing those and then we're replacing it with new healthier beliefs. I love that. And I love the uh, analogy of the house. You're, you're not bulldozing the house and starting mm -hmm. with all new stuff. You're cause I tell, I try to tell people um, for me, deconstruction is just really taking a hard second look at what I believe, what I've been taught to believe and why I believe it. Is it mm -hmm. just because someone told me I should believe it? Or is there hard evidence to back up my belief? Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, yeah, I love that idea of that the house where it's like, you're going to take this beam apart and say, is this a good beam? Is this still a healthy beam that I want to leave in my house? You're mm -hmm. not necessarily getting rid of everything. You're just looking at everything and seeing what's healthy and what's strong, and what's sturdy for you. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a cool, I love that analogy. Yeah. Um, and I can certainly see where some people would feel like they need to take a bulldozer to the whole thing <laughs> if it's been so unhealthy, so toxic for them. Um, but for me, I want, I feel like I went through a safety construction in my twenties while I was in grad school training to be a psychologist. And when mm -hmm. I was, I, my first experiences of being a therapist and just really encountering so much human suffering and trying to make sense of, um, my theology of suffering and why God allows bad things to happen. And where is he in this pain? And, and then some hard questions about sexuality and about, um, you know, just hard questions about our faith that I looked at during grad school and continue to examine. So during that, for me, it was not a bulldoze process. It was really like tearing it down to its foundation. Mm. Um, you know, I still kept kind of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. I still maintain a belief in Jesus and, and the cross and resurrection and, and just some of those real foundational beliefs for me. Um, but a lot of the other stuff, realizing how much of it was cultural, like gender, for example, how much of gender roles and gender expectations was cultural versus biblical. Um, and so I got rid of a lot of those building materials that that were no longer um, serving me and just no longer had a basis in the Bible, but were more so, like you said, is this just what I've been taught or told? Mm-hmm. Hey, girlfriends, I'm interrupting our conversation for just a minute to tell you about something really important coming up. God and My Girlfriends Ministries is getting ready for our annual Single Mama's Christmas Ministry. 
Last year, we were able to raise enough money to bless a very deserving single mom in our Nashville area, and it was beyond heartwarming for me to know that we, as a community of women, used our resources to lift this young mama up and let her know that other women care about her and her young boy. I know it made her feel loved and cared for and special, and I want to do it again. So this year, we want to bless two single moms. And this is where we need your help. First off, we need you to let us know if you are aware of a deserving single mom that could use a Christmas blessing from us. If you have someone in mind, please email us at gamgministries at gmail.com or just go to our website and you can contact us there. Also, we need to start raising funds. So if you want to donate towards this very wonderful part of our ministry, you can do that by going to our website and hit the donate button. And then you can let us know that this money is to be designated for the single mama's ministry. You'll be kept informed of how the money is being used and who will be blessed by your generous gift. I promise your heart will be warmed by donating to this ministry this year. So that's it. Help us find some deserving single moms and help us raise the funds. We really look forward to partnering with you this year on this. And now, back to the conversation. So let's talk about gender for a minute and egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Those are huge words Mm -hmm. um, that I had to learn about in the last few years. I'm really grateful that I, I didn't go to church for about six years, just had to walk away for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when I did most of my deconstruction. And I started for the first time, really studying the Bible, letting the Holy spirit, like lead me to study it, not just read it, but study it, try to understand it and not just have someone tell me, well, this is what it means. Like I was trying to really dig in and that's when, uh, yeah, I did a lot of my spiritual growth, but I finally found a church that is an egalitarian church. And I'm so grateful Ooh. for this little church. Um, so let's just, for the listeners that don't know what that is, can you explain what is egalitarianism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Egalitarianism is the belief that men and women are equal in value and equal in role. And so sometimes it's referred to as Christian feminism or gender equality or um, women's empowerment. I use some, you know, some of those terms interchangeably. But it contrasts with complementarianism, which is the belief that men and women are equal in value, that we both are created and made in the image of God and are valuable before God, but we have different roles and that those roles are God ordained. And so that is the traditional, more the traditional belief in the church um, when you look at church history. But if you've read Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood, that's an excellent book about, mm-hmm. um, she's a historian, a his- history professor at Baylor University. So she's looking at it from a historical perspective and how um, complementarianism is really rooted in secular culture over history rather than rooted in the Bible. And so learning how to read the Bible, learning how to interpret theology, um, learning about the importance of context and audience and what the original Greek and Hebrew words meant, like all of that has really helped me see that I believe that God gives us equal value and equal roles. Um, And so I mean, in my marriage, that plays out quite a bit in that we consider ourselves equal partners and we're a team in marriage and there's no head. Um, There's mutual submission. So we have mutual respect for each other and we mutually sacrifice and submit to each other depending on the situation and the issue out of love, 
but there's not this expected one-sided submission because I'm the female. Yeah. So it plays out in our marriage. It plays out like in just um, in the workplace for me and how I pursue a career. It plays out in my faith and in church and um, and my beliefs with that. So egalitarians aren't throwing out the Bible. We still really value the Bible. We just interpret some of those scriptures a little differently than um, historically they've been interpreted. Right, right. Yeah. Interpretation seems to be the key with all of it. Um, Some people are absolutely sure that their interpretation is the the right one and the only one. And then when you start, like you said, actually digging back into original Greek and original Hebrew, um, our community did a book study earlier this year online of Kathy Lee Gifford's The Rock, the Road, and the Rabbi. And it was fascinating because she starts diving into some of these words that have been misinterpreted. For instance, the word submit. Mm -hmm. Um, she said, if you go back to the original, uh, Greek or Hebrew word for that in the Bible, it actually just means to partner with. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, you realize, oh, to partner with, it doesn't mean that submit that, you know, what our English language means to submit now is to like be underneath. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at it, oh, that's not what they that's not the original intent at all. That's when it starts blowing your mind. And then when you start reading books like Beth Allison Barr's book and other books, you're, it just, my mind was blown. You know, I, I realized mm-hmm. that there is biblical uh, basis and interpretation to back up the fact that uh, egalitarianism is biblical. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of the controversy and the pushback that I hear is that, Oh, well, you're, you're throwing out the Bible. You don't, you know, follow the Bible or you're, you're not a biblically faithful or um, believer if you are egalitarian, but that's really not the case. There's so many examples of really intelligent and passionate Christians who, um, who believe in egalitarianism. And yeah, that's a good example of the word submission. Another one I like is in Genesis when God's making Eve and says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. And the word for helper means like partner means basically equal partner sustainer um this a teammate um working together on this shared task of filling the earth and subduing it Mm. Um, and so uh, one of my most controversial social media posts ever is i um i posted that my husband is my helpmate and i don't actually call him that but (laughs) i was trying to kind of go for shock value because I wanted to see how people would react to using that term for my husband when it's usually used, you know, for, for women. Right. And so many people loved that post, but then also a ton of criticism um, for that post and um, comments about, you know, that's not biblical. Women are the helpmates or the helpers. And just, I think it led to some good discussions of what does that word really mean? And that that word is used to refer to God many times in the Bible. And we would never say that he is subordinate to us or he is less than Mm -hmm. Um, we, you know, we would never call him as our helper in like a um, a subordinate kind of role. So, yeah, so that, that was um, interesting when I posted that about my husband and (laughs) the uproar it caused. Oh my goodness. Oh, well, yeah, it's, you never know what kind of uproar is going to happen on social media. You always Mm -hmm. have to get thick skin, right? Yeah. Um, there was one particular chapter in Beth Allison Moore book, uh, Beth Allison Barr's book, sorry, mm-hmm. that when she was breaking down Paul 
that mm-hmm. blew my mind because that's, you know, what a lot of complementarianism is based on a lot of what Paul had to say. Right. Right. And when she started breaking down the cultural times and what Paul was trying to say versus the, you know, the cultural messages and the way women were treated in the culture, it all just like, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Now you're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I get it. I don't know, you know, how it's been. It's just been kind of covered up by patriarchy in the church, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By this desire for men to maintain their power. And I think this, this fear of what will happen if we allow women to have equal roles, are they going to take over the church? You know, I've actually heard a pastor say that, like, if we allow women into these roles, they'll just take over. um, And then men won't even have an opportunity. So there's this real, this fear that's driving it, this driving this desire for men to maintain their power and their positions. Mm. Hi, friends. We're taking one more quick break just to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by God and My Girlfriend's Ministries. We are a registered 501c3 nonprofit that supports women in all walks of life. Women helping women become everything that God created them to be. That's our mission. We have online book clubs, live events, weekend workshops and retreats, a single mama's ministry, and also this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, get involved in any way with any of our programs, or maybe even help support us financially by donating, you can do all of that on our website, which is GodAndMyGirlfriendsOnline.com. You can also find us on any of our socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and even Twitter. So reach out when you can and let us know how we can serve you or maybe someone that you know. And now, back to the conversation. You know, there's another Christian message that I've been studying, just the prosperity gospel kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's also a toxic thing. I mean, it says, if you trust God, basically it says, if you trust God, good things are going to happen to you, you know, bad things won't happen, but that is so misleading and it's, it's really damaging and incomplete. It's an incomplete message. That's just not how it works. And it's sort of the same transitioning over to purity culture because and correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of overall message with purity culture was if you don't have sex before marriage and you do this and you do that, then you will have the perfect marriage. You'll have a blessed marriage. You'll be happy. You'll find the perfect man. And mm-hmm. that is also very incomplete and misleading and damaging. Um, what, what, how are you seeing this play out as harmful, like in the long run with some mm-hmm. of your, your clients? Yeah. And others have called um, parts of purity culture, the sexual prosperity gospel. Interesting. um, Yeah. So you're exactly right that that message of prosperity gospel has been translated, you know, into a a sexual impurity way. Um, How I see that play out is one of the myths of purity culture that I've identified is called the fairy tale myth. And that's the one that affected me the most too, which is just what you're describing of, if I'm, if I stay pure, if I don't have sex before marriage, if I do all the right things, then God's going to bring me a, a husband and a beautiful Christian marriage and a fantastic um, sex life and marriage. It's just going to be all worth the wait. And that really contributed to my faith deconstruction in my twenties, because I, I dated somebody who I thought I was going to marry in, in college. And I thought that was going to be my, you know, fairy tale. And we our relationship ended. And then I was single for seven years of my twenties, um, all through grad school and, and 
then a little before and after too, really desiring marriage and really had a lot of shame about being single because again, here I've done all the right things and like, why haven't I received God's blessing? Like why hasn't he brought me a spouse? And so, um, I met my husband and we got married when we were 30. So, um, a a little later than most of our peers in again, conservative Christian South that we live in. So, right. Yeah. So I see that, that myth and the sexual prosperity gospel, um, part of purity culture really affecting people through shame, um, for being single Mm. and also setting up this transactional relationship with God where your faith almost becomes a bargain of, well, I've held up my end of the bargain. Why hasn't God held up his? Or because I do action A, I should get result B. Mm. And we just know that our faith doesn't work that way. You know, there's, there's so many examples of how faith doesn't play out that way in the real world. And even in the Bible, um, where there were Christians who were very faithful and who were martyred for their faith or women who um, were infertile, even though they, they served God and, and were praying passionately for, for a child. So, um, so yeah, so there's examples in the Bible and in real world of how the prosperity gospel is false and incomplete, as you said. And I think the reconstruction part of that for me has been a better theology of suffering, like I mentioned earlier, and of God's grace a really more complete understanding of grace as an unmerited and undeserved gift. And, Mm -hmm. and so we always hear about graces in our salvation and in God's sacrifice on the cross for us. But I came to see grace as just any good gift in my life um, from God and that they were all undeserved. They were all things that I did not earn through my behavior. Um, And so it broke up that transactional relationship that I had developed with God in the bargain that I thought, you know, I was, I was going for. And it made me realize that like, whether I'm getting what I want or whether I'm not, these are examples of God's grace in my life and his best for me. And I have to trust his best for me, even when it doesn't always feel that way. So my singleness had to come to the belief that that was his best for me at the time. Mm -hmm. And then my meeting my husband and and our marriage, I believe that that is his best for me um, now. So um, so yeah, so that was a long journey of of really um, deepening my understanding of grace and replacing the prosperity gospel with that. Yeah, I was talking to a friend. She said um, that she read the Josh Harris book. I kissed dating goodbye, bought into it, believed it. Um, I, I don't know how I must have missed it. I think I had. I'm just trying to think about what the years those were that that came out. I think um, the early nineties, maybe early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so yeah. I, um, I was already married, I guess by the time. So I wasn't really, uh, and with small children. So I wasn't really thinking about that sort of thing, but you know, she said it was really, really difficult for her. Um, you know, she couldn't just suppress her sexuality and in her mind say, I don't, I shouldn't feel these things for, for men. What I'm feeling is wrong. And then suddenly she got married and she's supposed to suddenly be a sex kitten in bed, you know, and it's supposed to be great. And it, it wasn't, and it was really difficult. Do you, do you see that with other clients having trouble embracing the beauty of sex because of the uh, past shame that they felt for their feelings? 
Yeah. So what you're describing is another one of um, the myths of purity culture that I call the flipped switch myth, because Ooh. when you get married, you're supposed to just flip the switch Yeah. and suddenly sex was off limits and now it's holy and beautiful and you're supposed to just be enjoying it all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of shame with, with that myth too. So shame, you know, in your singleness for being a sexual being and having sexual desires and urges and then shame when you're married because some people have a hard time flipping that switch mentally. Like suddenly this is okay when it's always been like dirty and sinful and wrong. And how do I turn on my sexuality now when I've been repressing it for so long? So I hear that from men and women that I work with. Um, even, you know, men like I've repressed my urges and my like guarded my eyes and like just been so careful for so long that now like it feels dirty to ask my wife to have sex or to initiate with her or, or to enjoy like her body and sexual pleasure. So, yeah, so I think that can affect both singles and married couples. And the work that I do with singles on that is you don't have to repress your sexuality before marriage. You can believe that it's a beautiful thing and a gift from God, and you can find ways to appreciate it and celebrate it even within your value system. Um, you know, if you have certain boundaries or values around sexual behavior. So we talk about ways to explore and be comfortable with sexuality within their value system. And then after marriage, it's how can you replace those negative messages about sex that cr- contributed to all the shame with the real biblical purpose and meaning of sex and how can you see it as a beautiful thing to be enjoyed not to be obsessed over but also not to be repressed oh that's great Mm -hmm. that's great that sounds um well I just know that that's a very needed thing I'm so glad that you're digging into this and that you're that you've been led to coach people through these three specific I mean there's a more toxic Christian cultures we could talk about, but I'm glad that, um, that you have felt led to do the research and to know that you have the language and the skills to help other people and put yourself out there. So that is fantastic. Uh, We could talk about this forever, but we're almost out of time. And, um, I'm going to make sure that we link your website and all your socials in the show notes, And so people can get in touch with you for, for coaching, I guess, Mm -hmm. if they live in Tennessee, they can get in touch with you for therapy. Um, Our little community is based on spirituality, growing spiritually, growing in our friendships and growing in our self-care. So we've been ending all of our podcasts by asking three questions of our guests. So I'm going to start with those if you don't mind. So first of all, what is your favorite spiritual practice right now? Well, right now I've been really, um, feeling more connected to God when I read prayers and liturgies. Um, You know, that was something that like wasn't a part of my upbringing, you know, but something I've uh, recently really begun to appreciate. I really love the book, Every Moment Holy and the liturgies in there. And then there's a new one called um, To Light Their Way. It's liturgies for parents. And, and, you know, that's a stage I'm in with, with young, with a young child. And so, um, Yeah. So I've been enjoying just reading those and doing some breath prayers with that, like praying, inhaling and praying in one part of a scripture and then exhaling and praying the rest of it and kind of meditating on each word with each breath. And so that's been a spiritual practice I've recently kind of been working on and feeling more connected that way. I love that. Mm -hmm. I've just learned about breath prayers myself. I, Mm -hmm. 
Um, I follow a, a pastor, Oshita Moore on Instagram, mm-hmm. and she does morning breath prayers. If I get up early enough, um, she, some, I don't know if she's doing them right now, but for a while there, I would get up early because I just loved her morning breath prayer time. It was just a beautiful way to start the day. So I love yeah. that. Okay. Um, so what about friendships? What's one thing you do right now to be intentional and nurture your friendships? Well, I have to be honest, Marcia, since I've become a mom, friendships <laughs> really have decreased um, on the priority list um, just in my season of life right now. When I was single and, and even a little bit as a newlywed, like friendships were so important and just one of my biggest values. And I spent a lot of time talking on the phone, keeping in touch with long distance friends and going out with friends. So this is one area that um, I haven't been able to put as much emphasis on recently. But, but the biggest way I nurture them is just trying to be intentional and showing up for the big moments. Like that's always been really important to me is that um, in long-term committed friendships that we're going to show up for each other in the big happy times, like when we get married and have babies and things like that, but also in the hard times um, when a child gets a diagnosis or when you lose a job or when your marriage is going through hard times or you're going through a hard time in your faith and things like that. So, um, yeah, so now it, it looks less like, um, long weekly phone calls and it looks more like texts and Marco Polo videos back and forth um, with, with friends just in the season of life that we're in. But, um, but yeah, that's been a way to continue to nurture those friendships. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm going to encourage you right now to keep that up because, yes. you know, that's the thing. I, I feel like women, it's really easy to put your husband and your career, at, you know, and your children way up on the priority list, but, but friendships are important. So I hope you will uh, find time to nurture those a lot. <laughs> so what's your go-to self-care habit? Last question. Probably yoga, um, which I did before our, I had about an hour break before our call. um, Oh, good. In between a coaching client and another one after this. And so, yeah, so I've, I've been practicing yoga for a while now. And um, a lot of my therapy practice is mindfulness meditation based. And that mindful movement is very much a part of um, yoga and the mindful breathing. And yeah, so yoga and just nurturing myself um, is my self-care because uh, in my job, I nurture others, you know, I'm there holding space for them, being present for them. And then as mm-hmm. a, as a mom of a toddler, I'm, I'm nurturing <laughs> others and, and attending to their needs. And even in friendship, sometimes it can feel like I'm there, you know, f- to nurture and be there for you. So, so finding ways to nurture myself. And, and sometimes that's looks like, you know, getting my own therapy or um, r- getting massages and, you know, things like that, things that feed me and people who can be there for me too. And not just me having to pour out. Yeah. I think certain personalities, I can tell yours is one of them. You're just a nurturing human being. That's probably, probably why you were drawn to to therapy and coaching and, Mm -hmm. and yeah. And then one day you just like go, okay, who's nurturing me, (laughs) right? You just have those moments. So I'm glad that you're taking some time to take care of yourself. Um, Thank you. Dr. Camden, you're a delight. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing. I I wish we could have gotten more. Maybe we'll get you back on another time and talk more, but I appreciate you. I appreciate your social media presence. Truly. Um, you guys, uh, if you don't do anything, go to Instagram and follow Dr. (laughs) Camden Morgan, Morganti. 
Mm-hmm. Morganti. I keep mm-hmm. saying Morganti. I, yeah. Ramirez is hard too. I get Marcia Ramirez all the time instead of Marcia uh-huh. Ramirez. It's yeah. hard, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to know you. I hope thank we stay you. in touch. And um, and thank you for the work you're doing too, Marcia, because oh. deconstruction and faith issues, you know, that's, it's very popular kind of buzzword with, with people in my generation right now, right? People in their twenties and thirties, like, mm-hmm. but it is so it's refreshing to hear from people who are a little past that age too, to know that it's never too late to, um, to deconstruct and reconstruct your faith. And it's never too late to look at how you've raised your kids and what you maybe could do differently and, and what you, you know, learning from that. So I love it when I hear from my followers who are women in their, you know, forties, fifties, older than me, who've raised kids and who can say like, gosh, I wish I had this information when I was, you know, younger and was raising my kids, but it's never too late. And I'm giving them the example now of, uh, you know, I can learn and I can go back and apologize to them maybe for some of the purity culture teachings um, that I instilled in them and stuff. So I really respect that. And just thank you for making that space. Well, thank you, Dr. Camden. And yes, that is true. I have had some long talks with my kids and said, okay, sorry, I drug you to, (laughs) you know, this and that. And, uh, you know, I was learning too. We're all just learning. And it's interesting though. I will say before we go, the church that I've been going to mainly people my age, there's a lot of people my age that are, that are starting, just starting their deconstruction. It's all over Mm -hmm. the map, really all over the map. And, and one of the things that I I talk about a lot too, with our ministry is how important it is to have uh, a diverse friendship circle of all ages, because yes, what I'm learning from people of your age and what you're going through is so valuable to us at this time. You know, we can learn so much from people that are in different points of of mm-hmm. life. And so, so thank you. I'm so glad um, that you feel like what I'm doing is valuable. And I certainly feel like what you are doing is so very valuable. So thank you. Have a wonderful thank day you. and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Have a great one. Bye girl. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And I hope that if you are out there struggling with deconstruction or reconstruction, purity culture, um, egalitarianism, reach out to Dr. Camden and, and let her help you navigate through it. There's no reason to go through this alone. I was struggling alone for a long time until I found some really great resources. And I'm going to list a few books in the show notes here that we mentioned and a couple of others that I particularly found helpful for me. And if you have any other questions about this, feel free to contact me anytime. Seriously, I've been there and I get it. Okay, one more week. Next week is our grand finale for season two. So I hope you guys will tune in, finish the season with us. And until then, y'all stay safe, be well, and I will see you next week on the God of My Girlfriends podcast. Hey.